uh, each spring there would be this little drama between Sandra and I. Um, when we were first married, we lived in Syracuse. I was in grad school. So we, I would work sometimes Friday very late in the lab, and then we would drive up to her family's place up in the Adirondacks, which is about two hours away. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Adirondacks, but it is a very wet place in spring. So you have all the snow melt, and then you have all the rain. And the place is full of these little tree frogs, these peepers, and they're on the road everywhere. And Sandra would, the, the, the situation would go like this. I'd be driving, Sandra would say, do you see that frog? Which translated means don't hit it. <laughs> and I have nothing against little tree frogs, but I cannot tell you how accurate I was every time she pointed out. <laughs> and, you know, you could feel the temperature in the VW bug rising, and it wasn't because we had great heat. And I never understood why, why I could not, I, I have nothing against them. I was not trying to hit them. And it wasn't until I was uh, learning to ride the motorcycle, I took a motorcycle rider safety course in Connecticut, and... Um, the instructor was explaining one day how to turn the bike in a tight space. And he says, what you want to do is look over your shoulder. And he said these words of wisdom that we should all remember. Where you look is where you will go. What he was trying to do is get us to look, and then the bike would naturally lean that way, and you'd go. And uh, that's true whether you're riding a motorcycle. Sandra tells me it's the same thing when you ride horses. Um, if you like to ski in the trees, you're always looking where you want to go. You don't want to look at a tree because you're going to be meeting that tree very quickly. So where you look is where you go. And that's exactly why I was hitting every single tree frog she pointed out. But those words have an even greater significance when you think about the idea that where we focus our thoughts and our, our minds will go. God has made our brains very pliable. That means that's how we learn things. You do something over and over again, you cease to think about it, it becomes automatic because you've built in your brain a superhighway to react to that stimulus. And when we constantly focus on difficulty, we actually lay down tracks that go that way. And what the psalmist does is he provides a way to avoid that. When we constantly focus on, on what is the difficulty we're experiencing, we soon get into a very deep pit. And so this pattern of lament that we're going to see in this psalm and is in many psalms, is a way that helps us focus on where deliverance comes from rather than focusing on the problem that can lead us into depression and despair. So the Psalms of Lament give us this pattern. They actually help us to look where we want to go. Now, did you realize that of the 150 Psalms, 65 of them are laments? And in them, we see this blueprint for speaking to God when we are in time of trouble. 
and there are three basic elements. So let's just review what these are. And then we'll read Psalm 40, and you can look for them as we read. First, there is a turning to God. The direction of our prayer matters. It's not grumbling to others. It's intentionally coming to God with our complaint. So there's a turning to God. Second, there's a voicing of our complaint. The defining element of the lament is actually the complaint. The complaints we see in the Psalms and Lamentation and Job voice the problem or our experience directly to God. Now, this may unsettle you a little bit um, because it seems like, should we complain so openly to God? But remember, he already knows everything we're feeling and experiencing. So we're encouraged to be completely honest with him on how we feel because he knows it already. These laments remind us that we live in a fallen world, that we don't... Um, act like suffering and hurt and pain don't exist, and we don't uh, keep a stiff upper lip and act like it's no big deal and we just try to power through it. Thirdly, in addition to this turning to God and a voicing of our complaint, there is always an appeal to God to hear and to act. Laments don't end with the complaint. They look faithfully to where comfort and deliverance can be found. The grounds for this appeal is God's word, his character, and his covenant relationship with his children. These appeals to God teach us to turn our eyes to our Savior and away from difficulty. They teach us to look where we want to go. So let's take a look at Psalm 40. We'll read it together. I will pray, and then uh, we'll actually work through it. So Psalm 40, to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the ground to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those, who put, let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes away, <coughs> takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So let's pray together. Lord, we just ask that you would open your word to us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds. Make your word clear and alive. Lord, may we see ourselves in it. And may we see our Savior. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so did you see the elements of the lament? They were in a slightly different order here in this particular psalm. So what we're going to do is, uh, first I'll just give you the outline that we're going to look at. First, in verses 1 through 5, remembering God's faithfulness. This is where David starts. And this is the looking to God where our deliverance can be found. Then we have in verses 6 through 10, the psalmist's response to God's deliverance. In 11 through 15, we see this, the actual lament or complaint. And then the psalm ends with an appeal to God for deliverance in verse 17. So I'm going to just walk through each of those with you. So maybe you find yourself in great difficulty and darkness this morning. God wants to speak to you through this psalm. But maybe things are going fairly well for you. Why should you listen this morning? Well, I hate to tell, break bad news, but pain and suffering are coming to see you at some point. Um, we know this because we live in a fallen world. But maybe you know someone who's going through a dark time. When someone is in the pit, they don't think clearly, and they will tend to withdraw. Do not let them. You can help them by being with them and encouraging them to lament properly. So there's something here for all of us, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. So let's look at how David starts this psalm. First, he remembers God's past deliverance. He said, I waited for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. There is an intenseness in what David is saying in this waiting. This is a deliberate and potentially long wait where patience is required. If you are facing difficulties, you need to be prepared to wait. Faith is best demonstrated in the patience of waiting. 
And David was willing to wait on God rather than act in taking matters in his own hands. Now here's where we can help one another. When I am in difficulty, I will grow weary of waiting for deliverance because the pain is intense. And I'll look <coughs> to some way to remove it. But you aren't experiencing that same pain. You can, you can provide encouragement to me and perspective that helps me wait and helps me keep waiting. Second, we see not only <coughs> David's waiting, but he says, you inclined to me, you heard my cry. This, even at the, as the psalmist was in his lowest point of depression, yet condescending love bent down to him. Notice that the words that are used, he bent down, he heard, he delivered. If you are a child of God this morning, you can be confident that he hears your prayers. Your heavenly father is not deaf to your cries. <clears throat> and we need to bolster ourselves against the temptation that will invariably come that suggests that God doesn't care. In hearing God's, or in hearing David's cry, God delivered him. We don't know the occasion of this deliverance, but the lack of knowledge actually allows us to apply this in a very general way. We don't know if it was due to the, impression, the oppression of Saul or Absalom. We don't know if it was from his own sin, although we get some indication that that may have been involved. We just don't know. But the significance of the situation, there was a significant situation because David refers to the fact that he was in the pit of destruction. He says, he, God, drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Now, I don't know if you have ever been in a bog, but it is something I can relate to. As a fisherman, you can imagine I've been in some wet places. And when we lived in Connecticut, there was a river that got fished a lot, and I would sometimes go after work, and uh, I noticed that nobody ever fished this river from one side. Now, being the curious scientist I am, I said, I wonder why that is. And I found out why that is. <laughs> I looked at the map, I tracked how I was gonna get in, and I was gonna fish the river from the other side because I know that when a lot of fishermen fish through an area, the fish tend to move away from where they get fished over all the time. So I was gonna go in there. And I started in, and it got a little muddy, but I got hip boots up to here. I'm not too concerned. Well, it wasn't long before I was up to my knees in mud. And the more I tried to get through this, the deeper it got. And at one point, I was up to my waist in mud, and I had this feeling like the harder I struggled, the deeper I went. And I, you realize, I don't know if you've ever been in a tough spot, but you realize this is not going well. I'm going to be here a long time. <laughs> you know, if it hadn't been the fact that I'm a skier and snowshoer and realizing I got to spread my weight, distribute my weight or I'm never getting out of here. And I basically just laid down in the mud and pulled myself out. 
Um, but that's, when you're in that, you have no place, you cannot get your feet on anything solid. You're just going down, and that's what trouble can look like, especially when it moves, <clears throat> excuse me, into depression. Nothing seems to, to help. But David said, God set my feet on firm ground, making my steps secure. That's what you need when you're in difficulty and you can't find any solid place to plant yourself. He said, God put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise, a song to encourage others to trust in God's deliverance. God's past deliverances help us stay encouraged that God will rescue us in the present trouble. When we share God's deliverances with one another, we can be an encouragement to one another, especially those who are in a difficult place. Finally, we see David telling of the lessons learned from these past deliverances in verse 4 and 5. He said, blessedness comes from trusting the Lord who can be trusted and has the power to deliver. This is contrasted with the proud or going after a false hope. You saw that reference there. The word he used for this proud is actually a reference to the nation of Egypt. Now, why would that be? Well, it was because when the Babylonians were taking over the area and, and uh, taking over nations, they were marching through. Israel, or Israel thought, well, if we ally ourselves politically with Egypt, they will protect us against the Babylonians. But the Egyptians were no help at all. They were like a, a broken walking stick. You put any weight on it and you just go down. And that's the word that David is using here for this false hope. God's people looked for protection but got none. When you are in a dark place, you will look for relief in any place that it can be found, whether that's in worldly wisdom, which offers some help, but ultimately is a feeble wall that topples. You will look for it in distractions that offer a deadening of your pain. Beware when you're in the pit. Your old sin patterns will resurface. And finally, let me just encourage you. During periods of difficulty, these are times like no other when God will surface what your idols are. Don't run from the pain. Embrace it. And then David concludes, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. I will proclaim and tell of them they are more and can be told. So that's David reminding him, himself before he goes into the complaint, he's reminding himself what God has done in the past. And that's this looking to where we want to go. That's where his hope can be found, his deliverance will come from. Next, we see the psalmist's re response to God's past deliverance. We see this in verse 9 and 10. He said, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance in my heart. 
I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love. So David's response was thankfully proclaiming what God has done. When God delivers, you have a responsibility to tell others what he has done for their benefit. Sometimes we need to encourage one another when someone is sinking by just simply reminding them of what God has done for them, not just in saving them, but also how God has delivered them in the past and in other situations that you may be aware of. Let's be quick to share God's deliverances. Um, consider how you might do that. Maybe it's on Sunday morning when we, when we have a time of testimony, or maybe in your community group, or maybe it's with a small group of friends, but speak of his deliverance and encourage one another. Now, based on what God has done, David's natural response is a desire to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. We see that in verse 6. But he's reminded, in sacrifice and offerings, you have not delighted. Is David remembering Saul's experience when he didn't wipe out the Amalekites and Samuel, Samuel told him to, to obey is better than sacrifice? We don't know whether Samuel told him that or whether David just knew it. But here we are reminded that what God desires is our obedience, not sacrifice. So David then expresses the response that honors God. He says, I delight to do your will. And even as David responds to <coughs> thankfulness for God's deliverance, here we see an even greater deliverance in view. <coughs> God's grand rescue from the slavery of sin in Christ's death and resurrection. Now you may ask, how can you go there from here? And I will tell you, there are two clues that tell us this. First is a reference to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 9. The writer of Hebrews actually quotes this as referring to Christ. Dan read that scripture for us this morning, and you can go back and look at it. It's in Hebrews chapter 10. So that's the first clue. The second clue is a puzzling phrase that's used here. We see this phrase, you have given me an open ear. Now the translators have a tough time translating that, but literally what it means is an ear you have dug for me. Kind of a puzzling phrase, and that had me really thinking about this. It actually occurs one other time in Isaiah during the song of the suffering servant. Now this is a a looking forward to Christ, and he uses it in the following way. He says in Isaiah 50, verse 5, an ear you have dug for me. I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Now listen to this. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. Now we see that Christ is fully in, <coughs> embodied in this psalm. Look at, the, look at what David says in light of Christ speaking. I have told the glad news of the gospel of deliverance from sin. 
in the great congregation. Christ proclaimed the good news to the Jews in spite of opposition from the leaders of the Jews, as we are seeing as we're working through the book of John. Christ offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for the nation and the whole world. Jesus did not restrain his lips. He did not hide God's coming deliverance from sin. Jesus proclaimed and then demonstrated the faithfulness of God in providing salvation for your sin. You have the confidence that David proclaims here in verse 11 where he says, O Lord, you, O Lord, will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. Christ demonstrated that steadfast love and faithfulness in going to the cross to reconcile you to God. God has delivered, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> God has delivered you from the pit of your sin when you could not save yourself. The harder you try to earn your way to God, the deeper you go down into your lostness. Do you feel the frustration of trying to earn God's favor, but are constantly falling short? Is religion wearing you out? You don't need real rehabilitation. You don't need to try harder. You need rescue. And that's what the gospel provides. <clears throat> he has pulled you out of the pit of your own making and has set your feet upon the solid ground. Jesus gave his life so that your sins might be forgiven. He tasted death and destruction so that you would not have to. Thirdly, we see the psalmist's actual complaint to God. We'll see that <clears throat> we see this in uh, the next verses. He's, now, remember, this is a complaint to God, and that's the important thing in these laments. We pour out our complaint to God, not to one another, not to other people. It is a crying out to God. He starts, you, O Lord. It is a cry for mercy, and nothing is held back. Look at the language that he used. Evils have encompassed me beyond number in verse 12. A proper lament claims all that you feel. David is telling God that evil has surrounded him, leaving him no way out. There is no surprising and all-knowing and seeing God. You don't need to put a religious face on your pain. You can tell God the depths of the sorrow you feel. And we see this even in other psalms of lament. I'm thinking of Psalm 22 where Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22 and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The, the reason we can direct our complaint to God is that we are in a covenant relationship with God. Notice every time these uh, laments occur, there's always a personal pronoun. It's crying out to my God or you, oh my Lord. There's always that connection, that covenant relationship between God and ourselves. David goes on to say in verse 12, my sin has overtaken me. Now, the, the troubles David is experienced, 
appear to be of his own making. He says, I cannot see. I'm in darkness. They're more than I can count. And the end result is my heart fails. I have no courage left. And if you've ever been in, you know, a, a deep darkness or in depression, you can relate. You have no courage to do anything. <clears throat> Next, we see David's appeal to God for deliver, deliverance. He says, deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. David pleads for deliverance from those who taunt his situation, even if it has come at his own sin, because of his own sin. Satan will try to convince us that God does not care. He will tell us, you did this to yourself, you deserve what you're experiencing. Next, David calls out to God to deal with his enemies. He says, let those plotting against me be put to shame. Let them be turned back. Let them be put to dishonor who are hurting me. Let other people see their shame and mock them. This is a vehement call for God to level at his enemies. And while this may seem like something we should not do, by calling on God for, for justice, we can be sure that God's response will be perfectly just not tinged with the revenge that our response would be. Finally, David once again turns away from his trouble back to God in the end of the psalm, who is the source of his coming deliverance. He reminds himself of the blessings of those who call upon the Lord for deliverance. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad. Those who love your salvation May they praise the greatness of God. Even though David recognizes that he is poor and needy, God takes thought of you. God is your helper and deliver you, deliverer. Because you are united to Christ by faith, you can bring your lament to God and turn reassured of his concern. Everything that shouts, God is not for me in your pain, is exposed as a lie before the cross. You can come to God in your time of trouble and know he hears you, he loves you, and he is working out his best for you. So in closing, let's consider three ways that we can apply this psalm to our lives today. First, and you may be in one of these three different categories. First, are you experiencing difficulty, pain, or depression? And what we can, if you are, you need to know you are not alone. Many have experienced this, even Jesus himself. Call out to God. Name what you are feeling. Turn to God for deliverance. And don't isolate yourself. You will focus on the problem and you will go down deeper and deeper. Surround yourself with friends and loved ones who will encourage you in how God has delivered you and them in the past. Remind yourself of the gospel. Sometimes you won't be able to even pray, or you won't be able to praise God. But as you gather with others who do, they can speak for you. Second, do you know someone who's experiencing this level of difficulty? 
if you do encourage them to look to God for deliverance. Encourage them to name their trouble honestly to God and remind them that their feelings are real, but so is God's deliverance. Remind them of instances in the past that God has delivered them, and above all, don't let them isolate themselves. Thirdly, are you struggling under the weight of religion? Are you frustrated? Do you feel like you can never do enough? God has provided deliverance for you. The gospel tells us that we can never measure up to God's righteous requirements, and it's no wonder that you're worn out. There is no rescue for you apart from that that is offered in the gospel. So we urge you to put your faith in the one who lived a perfect life on your behalf and suffered the penalty for your sins so that you could be made right with God. Call out to him in faith, and he will deliver you. So let's close our time in prayer.